0: milwaukee may 28, 1981. 30-year-old christine schultz is brutally murdered by a home intruder with her two small children also inside after a three-week investigation police make an arrest in the murder catapulting the case into what would become one of the most prominent trials in american true crime history Laurencia Bembenik, the 22-year-old newlywed wife of Christine's ex-husband, a Milwaukee police detective, is soon tried and convicted of the home intrusion and murder. But after several appeals, the former model eventually escapes from prison under much fanfare. As many believe, she was actually framed for the murder by her former employer, the Milwaukee Police Department. Welcome to Badger Bizarre. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer... parts such as skulls, skeletons, And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode 16 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host Scott Whitman. Along with me, your other host, Mickey Sanders. How's it going, Mick? That's me. I'm good. How are you? Excellent. Christmas time is uh, is in full swing here. Mickey's uh, got his digs all decorated oh, out. Oh, Totally. Charlie Brown's nothing got but nothing but tinsel on and you, trees there. and nothing. The beautiful tree you have here and, uh, in your living room—it's
1: actually down in the basement, in the corner. Okay, it's all up. There's lots of cobwebs decorating it and everything. It's real nice. Lazy so we are
0: up and ready for episode 16 here. I, I do want to tell you, I had a bit of an experience.
1: Speaking of Christmas trees,
0: no, it has nothing to do with Christmas trees.
1: Maybe it was the North Star.
0: My kids, my even my kids had a had a had a hypothesis of what it is. So maybe it does involve a little bit of. Christmas. I shouldn't say that. So I am not a UFO guy, right? I mean, not as much as I. Am, we've really. talked, you know, off mic quite a bit. I, I just, you know, it's not that like I don't believe in, Miracles. you know, aliens or whatnot. Yeah. But I just, you, you, you know, the whole building structures on Earth and and interactions with with people. I'm not <laughs> sure. I, I'm, I don't, I don't have anything to make me believe that that is happening, except so, for the pyramids of Rock Lake, a hundred percent. Alien originated. Once again, no, no
1: sarcasm.
0: So I did have an experience that I cannot explain, and uh, I'd leave it open for the listeners to tell me what I was looking at. So this would have been, this was a week ago Friday, so this was December 2nd. That's important, December 2nd.
1: I'm taking notes.
0: Uh, we're, we're at home. My kids are home. We Everybody's home now. My kids get home from school. My wife is home. It's about 4, 4.30 in the afternoon, and it's Friday on December 2nd.
1: Kids are on your lap, wife's holding your hand, the fire's
0: going. It's a perfect Norman Rockwell evening. Your chestnuts are roasting on your open fire. (laughs) You would never imagine how how Americana this living room looks. Ansel Adams
1: is painting you. He was a photographer.
0: So? We had nothing going on on that Friday night, right? Our weekends are ridiculous. We have basketball tournaments for the kids and just all kinds of stuff on weekends. And it, my youngest turned six on uh, uh, last week, and, and it's the same day as my dad's birthday. So I had to I had to go shopping.
1: He'd already turned six, and you still had to buy his gift. No, no, good no, father. no, no, no,
0: no, oh, okay. no. On December second, he was a he was going to turn six on the eighth. All right, right. Good. So he was not You're still six a good dad. Then. So, okay. so I needed to go shopping. We weren't doing anything that Friday night. It's four thirty in the afternoon. I'm like, my wife. I'm going. I'm running to the store. There's a couple stops I made. I had to go get one thing at the mall. I'm not a browse guy, right? I go to the mall, I run in, Typical I get the a there. Typical man shopping. I just cringe. Right. But anyway, so I get in, I get out. So I get done what I need to get done, and I'm coming home. And it's dark out now, right? It's seven, seven o'clock, maybe at night, a little after that, quarter after. So I'm driving home from the mall in Appleton. If you, you know, listeners know that you and I are in the Appleton area.
1: And that's horrifying enough. Just driving home from the mall during was, Christmas.
0: Sure, it was like it was December second, so it's a little early, but it's still super busy. It's dark out, you know, lots of traffic around. People are very polite and considerate. <laughs> There's at this time of year, no road rage in Appleton at all. So I'm I live north of Appleton, so I'm I always take the same road from town up because I you know I'm about twelve or so miles outside of town, so I'm driving north on County A. For those of you that live in this area, Lindale Street, I'm driving north out of Appleton. For those of you that don't live here, it's not all that important. For those of you that live here, you can envision this. So I'm driving north of Appleton. It's Friday. There's a ton of traffic outside, right? So I'm looking straight ahead. It's dark. And I see all kinds of traffic coming at me on on the county road. But I also see higher than them, above the, the cars, lights in the sky what looks like stationary lights in the sky and i'm like that doesn't look like traffic it's weird but again heavy traffic outside it's dark those lights were far away they looked like they were in the sky but i wasn't quite sure maybe it was reflections of traffic lights i don't know so i'm driving north and those lights are still there right so now i'm I'm starting to get okay these lights are this is definitely not traffic the FBI is chasing you. It could possibly be the FBI because you waited till two days before your kid's birthday to get him a gift. It was, it no, it was six days. Oh, six days. And it wasn't the
1: FBI because that's what they look for normally.
0: I, I keep driving north, and as I drive north, obviously the the traffic is thinning out because I'm I'm getting further outside of town. And these lights are still in the sky, and I see them closer now. Right. So there's they're orange. They're definitely orange lights, kind of kind of like fire. It wasn't fire but it was this it looked like same tint of fire. fire yeah it looked so there were six lights making like an arch in the sky kind of kind of like a rainbow but not all the way down to the horizon you know it was maybe like a half rainbow in the sky and there's six of them clearly six clear lights in the sky making this kind of arch over with the two bottom ones like left and right at the bottom then not no, they're not at the bottom they're not touching the horizon they're No no but I mean bottom. but it was it, as you picture yes, it, a rainbow yes, yes, the arc was yes, going up yes yes in a, okay. it, it it's a definite formation here okay which is one of the things that caught my eye right yeah. i mean that's not it doesn't seem scatter shot i mean that seemed intentional that it's Probably creating a football stadium and you were drunk and didn't recognize it this this formation so i'm watching this and and these five of the six lights are a very consistent, solid orange light. The one on my right, second to the right, is flickering, and it's not like a consistent flashing. Like, eh, eh, eh. it's flickering. Like it's kind of like it's weaker than the other ones. Reminds right? me of Christmas vacation. The lights aren't flickering, Clark. <laughs> I know, and thank you for pointing that out. This one was definitely flickering. The only one that was flickering. So I'm, you know, obviously I'm, I'm still going. I'm going further north, and I'm getting closer to where these lights are. And they're definitely not reflections. They're not drone. They're, I, I can see they're definite structures in the sky. They're all attached. You assuming? I mean, associated with each other? Then I would. I. I don't know. If they're not attached, but I would assume they were associated with each other. Yeah, because they were making that formation. And again, the second one from the right is is flickering. So I'm now. I'm going under these things. Now I'm going under the lights, and I'm trying to make sure I'm looking at other traffic. You know, and trying like, not are, to kill yourself you guys as you're looking, driving. right? Because it's dark. I couldn't like get out and take pictures of it. Or, not, not that I mean, they were so high up that I don't know if I, you know, my iPhone would have made a decent picture, anyways.
1: You were by yourself or not? Yeah, I'm by okay,
0: myself right. driving, and I'm looking at other drivers that are passing me. I'm like, are you people seeing this? You know, mm. they're, they're looking straight ahead. They don't seem to see any. But you're talking to yourself. Honestly. I'm talking to myself. You damn I right. right. I'm like, what right. in the hell am I looking at? I'm like, am I? What am I missing here? Is this a? Are these airplanes? Is this a, a military thing going on? This is what? gonna date me. Am what? I on candid camera? So now I'm I'm going under these and I can I can look up at them and they're they're hundred percent not spotlights, they're not reflection, they're definitely six structures in the sky, no question about it. And they're way up there. They're not drones, right? It's a fairly clear night. There's no stars yet.
1: Is there any reasonable way to say how far apart they were, or is that kind of I mean too ridiculous to even ask? I, I don't. I, I would but have too far. Away. I would
0: have no idea. To um, I mean, they were. If you're looking in the sky from your perspective, so you, you would know, say they were associated with each other. No maybe question Part about of the it. same. Whatever it, it was. No, Whatever they were, they were together. I have Good. no doubt about that. So now I get, I get past them, right? I go under like the arch and it's not like this, this thing was an arch over the road that I'm on. I don't mean that. It was just, it was making this formation in the sky. So I go under this thing and there was no lost time or anything like that. Right. It wasn't, I didn't go, I didn't go into any portal. I was fine when I came out the other side. So I get past them. Right. And I go up to the road that I live on, which is about a mile past when I got, when I got under them. And I take a right on that road where I live and I look back and now the one on the far right while i was driving up the one on the far right is flying around the one that's flickering like and it's not like a mm, like a real slow drag it's like flying around the one that was flickering, like a plane can't do. Like, oh, definite, no plane. Like, no plane. Technology there's, we have right, isn't no, necessarily we capable. Cannot of. do this. No I way. just got the willies talking, hearing you talk about this, this. Was no plane, and I want to believe in this stuff. So it's, it's flying around the one that was flickering, and I'm like, what in the frick am I looking at? Right, and it's still it's dark. I'm still on another county road, so there's more traffic coming by. So I go up to 47, which is a highway. North of Appleton. I get up to 47. It's the first intersection. I look back, and they're gone. All the lights are gone.
1: Man, that's the kind of stuff I hear in so Skinwalker
0: like, Ridge. I don't know what the hell I just witnessed. And it's gone that quickly. You gone that quickly. No like we're talking no fumes or anything. We're talking, we're, from when I saw the one fly around, the one that was flickering, and then I drove up to the intersection, we're talking 45 seconds. And you see it. Gone.
1: If you see a plane, you see that... Distant trail and all that. This is the kind of stuff they talk about on Skinwalker. and I, I want to see this. I, why don't I have these
0: experiences? So I am jealous, especially because they didn't abduct you. I was, as far as you know, freaked out because you know at first I'm, I'm seeing this stuff and I'm like, I don't know what it is, but it's it's got to be some kind of planes. It's some kind of drone action. I don't know, but then when I look back and I saw that one zooming around that That's one, weird. I'm like, you got to be freaking kidding me. Did your butt hurt at all so afterwards? I,
1: was there any anal
0: probing? <laughs> we'll get to the good stuff later. <laughs>
1: the X-rated, after-dark version of Badger Bazaar.
0: There was no, again, there was no lost time or no probing that I'm aware of, at least right now.
1: Like how you got all serious when you said that? So I
0: get home, and obviously my wife and my kids are there, and I tell them what happened. I Just what I told you now. I tell them. And my kids are looking at me, and their mouths are wide open. Like mine was. And my kids like are... I was getting the willies. My kids are... 5 8 and 10. And they look at me and they're like, "It's Santa! Santa's <laughs> out there. He's getting his sleigh tested. Rudolph's tested. I mean, tested. He's, there, he's getting everything oiled up and greased up." And I'm Kid, like, "Yeah." He's got a great. It's it's, it's definitely Santa. Yeah, that must have been what it was. And you know, and Vicky's like, you know, she said that she would sometimes when she cuz she used to live in Stevens Point when she went to school and she would say that there were some military operations that she saw, like mm. planes flying in formations like that. And I used to see, I lived in Denver which is an right. hour from the air force I academy some of that stuff and i would see stuff like that too those were clearly airplanes right right that was not this the and those are super loud
1: right, right. they're like
0: f sixteen. just the movement of this one and these it makes no me think planes, i'm
1: right. hearing about stuff i read about
0: so you know i tell them my kids are like it's santa my wife's like you're stupid so i go home and i get online Right. And I look online, I go down Facebook, on Twitter, anything, thinking I'm, I'm not going to post anything. Right. I'm not, I'm not going to be the one to say, Hey, is anybody right. seeing weird shit outside? Well, like, you know, Andrew Bizarre's last episode was <laughs> so I get in, and I, nothing, nobody's posting anything online. And I'm like, I guess all your I'm book just, sales have suddenly stopped. I, I guess I'm just stupid because obviously that was a really mundane thing that nobody else cared about. And I'm just, I don't know what that was. You saw so, traffic
1: all around you at least early on
0: right and nobody was paying any attention to it so i'm like okay whatever so i don't think about it anymore friday night saturday goes by we're super busy doing things i don't think about it at all saturday another busy sunday weekend day i don't think about it much and then we get to sunday night the day's over and i'm i'm you know just it's late i'm just going to just about going to bed and i do what everybody i think does right before they go to sleep oh scroll no. i'm scrolling facebook oh right and on my timeline And I'm not searching for this. I wasn't even thinking about it anymore. But on my timeline is a... I don't know if it was a suggested page for me or what. But, it's you know, that's the other thing is it's weird that this just came on my timeline. Right. It was a, a suggested group. And the group was called Strange Lights in night sky that's kind of a generic name right but it came up you've never seen
1: something like that before offered to you on your timeline
0: not that i remember or that you paid attention to maybe now this time
1: you noticed it because of what you just went
0: through but here here's the kicker so i read the little blurb that comes on the group and it says strange lights in night sky i decided to create this group after we experienced some strange lights in the sky for nearly an hour on the evening of december 2nd 2022 this is a new website and it just started it started on december 3rd wow right so and and he goes on as i did a facebook search for lights in the sky and sorted the most recent posts i was blown away by how many people from all over north america saw the same phenomenon north america at nearly the same time even we're all thousands of miles apart so on this group is all kinds of people that were posting things from what they saw on the night of December 2nd from Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota... Not just Appledee. ...down to North Carolina, Seriously. Mississippi. And the thing is, a lot of these, and some of these I can tell aren't real. They're like spotlights. I shouldn't say not real. They're people that don't know what they're looking at. Some of these are spotlights. Some of these are headlight reflections. Okay, but some of them are, and there's one of them on there that looks like the flickering light that I saw. Like there's an orange thing and it's flickering that looks a lot like the light that I saw.
1: You're not even talking the Midwest though, you're talking the East Coast. Talking it. all of Yeah, I don't like know. Like the the right hand the eastern and, side of the country saw
0: And the other thing is this it this isn't a lot of it was not what I saw. It was different. Oh. So people were posting things there of strange lights that they're seeing in the sky, but it was different from what I've seen, it's different from each other. So it seems like Independence Day. There was oh. some kind of coordinated effort, collective effort, by something of this earth or not, I have no idea, that was going on in our skies on the night of December 2nd. Did you see Will Smith at all? I did not. I didn't oh, see...
1: Maybe it wasn't Independence Day. So Bill, whatever his name is. Paxton. I don't know
0: what the hell that I was looking at on the night of Friday, December 2nd this year, but I definitely saw... Weird stuff in the sky. There's, it's interesting, and on that group too, they're, they have a posting of. It's, so they were doing the local news in Nashville, you know, and how they do when they're, they're doing local news and they show a, a live shot of the of the like the cityscape. That's far a, away from a, here a, for the, a live. Like that. So they're showing a live shot of the city. You know, you see the skyline of of Nashville, and they're going to do the weather or something, right? They're just talking at the desk, and on live TV, you see something. Shoop, Shoot right through the sky on the live shot, and the guy sees it on TV and he, on the news, and he's like, "Did you see that? Did you see well, what that we
1: just saw?" That wasn't already taped footage. No, it was on that live the night TV. of December second. Oh my god, it
0: happened at that time alien, when everybody is seeing this shit. Alien takeover. It's all on that group. Go look at it. So why didn't I see what any of this I saw? Crap? something happened in our skies on the night of December second, which was a week and a half ago, Friday. So I'm not sure what happened. But as, as I said,
1: that much confirmation
0: is crazy right, from all at, over the country. That night I'm like, I'm, I'm an idiot. Nobody else saw this. And now I'm like, holy shit, like thousands of miles away. People were seeing thousands
1: stuff. and there's, I'm, I'm guessing we're good friends. We talk about everything. I'll bet you, you don't even necessarily mention it to me if you don't have confirmation from anyone
0: else. I mentioned you it probably, to my wife and my kids that night, and nobody after that until I saw right, that face. until you knew that other
1: people had seen it. Like, I ain't proven that I'm crazy to anybody no else. No question
0: about it. Even, though, even your crazy friend, Mickey. So, again, the alien thing. I tend to believe that this is probably some kind of coordinated effort by our government. I don't. Um, ancient aliens. Well, they wouldn't on be the ancient next episode. Like, they'd be like modern aliens. They talk about they'd modern, modern like aliens and ancient aliens.
1: Okay, fine. Skinwalker Ranch. That's the kind of stuff they discuss on that show, though. So, yeah, I'm excited and I didn't even see it.
0: So I just, I, you know, if anybody else out there has, saw something on December 2nd, get on that Facebook group, Lights in the Night Sky. You're not alone. Or, you know, contact us on social media and let me know because it seems I'm the only one around here that saw it. I did see some other things in the, like in Wisconsin. You're the only
1: There's, one run in this area that's said, that has, that has said anything it, right. right? Yes. The other drivers had to have seen it. Maybe they were afraid of being crazy or accused of being. You know, crazy I'm I'm too.
0: looking at these and I'm I'm trying to watch these drivers that they go by and like, are they looking up at this stuff or is it just me? And nobody was looking at it. It was plain as day, though, like, right? Oh my God, there's no way you couldn't see this. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was high up there. I'm not saying it wasn't like street level. It right. was high up, but but they were clearly there, and you right. weren't stretching your neck to see no. it because you're driving along I'm and just, just caught your gaze. I thought it was, I thought it was traffic lights when I first right. saw it. I'm like what in the hell? So there's no way you're the only one.
1: You're just the only one in this area admitting it. But all the way to North Carolina, that's I think it's an alien takeover. I'm just throwing. Do you think out. so? They're, I think. Are you prepped up? They're yeah, gonna blow good? up the White House. I don't. I haven't seen Independence well, might, Day for a while. It'll
0: be that bad. But you know. <laughs> can you blow
1: up most of the politicians? That's all we really care. About. <laughs> The house can be rebuilt.
0: We're probably going to get a knock on our door now. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. Something, Scott, something, why are you driving away so quickly? Oh, crap. <laughs> something, you know, you know, I'm not, I, I tend to find myself as a fairly reasonable guy. We're both
1: cynics and skeptics, and, and I'm a little more believable into the extraterrestrial than Scott is. But, man, this has to make your brain work.
0: The, you know, i would never, and one of the reasons that I don't believe in the, you know, I, I sh- and I don't, I don't, again, I don't want to say don't believe. Right. I, I, I don't have reason to, um, you know, be a staunch believer in that aliens are visiting Earth or anything like that. And I still don't I'm not saying these were aliens. I have no idea. Right.
1: And you do believe that there is other intelligent life in our in our cosmos sure, or universe. Sure. I just, I but don't, you don't think that we've had
0: any interaction Right. With I don't know that they even know about us. And you know. Well, all it's I know is those that theories. something on December 2nd happened Something happened in our skies. In, in, in the sky throughout a lot of places, it certainly seems. It wasn't Me seeing anything weird, it was a lot of people seeing things weird.
1: I'm jealous as hell.
0: It was an experience, no doubt about it. It was fun to see. It was fun to see my kids' reaction to it, thinking it was Santa. Right. How did Vicky? Yeah, she thinks it's something pretty explainable. Right. Yes, and and I don't disagree with that at right, all. Right. I just don't know what it would be. Right. Like I've never seen anything like that. And what moves what right. kind of Nothing technology do we fast. have that moves in the sky like that? Nothing moves that fast. Orbital like that. This was something I've never seen before. You know, my, I mean, again, my dad spent his whole life in aviation, you know. I I've been to EAA almost every year of my life, right? right? I'm not an idiot when it comes to aviation. Um but I've never seen anything like this. Well, it, doesn't make
1: you an idiot, yeah. I mean,
0: so keep your eyes open, people. Something there's something in some, our skies. And now I drive down that road, and I, I, I don't Look take my for it. Of course, that's right? I'm Who down doesn't? that road. That's, I drive that road every day. Who doesn't? Every day, and that's all I think about now is where'd they go? Where'd
1: they go? No matter what happens to you from here on, you're gonna be
0: disappointed the rest of your life. I want to see them again. It's sad. As long as they leave, just leave me alone. Yeah, you know, no anal probes, no, no abduction. No, no but
1: it's fascinating, man.
0: I, you hadn't
1: told me the story completely.
0: Yeah, I wanted to tell you on mic, right? So and it, it's, it's it's
1: that's way more than I envisioned when you first said something happened in our skies. I'm like, oh, Mr. Drama is freaking making something out of nothing. No, you didn't.
0: So the other thing I want to talk about today, just so I just I wanted to bring this up about we're talking about uh, a story today that was a pretty massive story in its day, internationally known. Um, you know, Stephen Stephen Avery, which. I think everybody knows by now. You know the the f- subject of uh, making a murder has another hearing coming up with an appellate court. He's trying to get a new trial again. They have uh, new and compelling evidence that is uh, it, it warrants a new trial. And there's a lot of parallels to this story. And if you've seen Making a Murder, you'll understand as you listen to what we talk about with the Lori Benbenik story there's a lot of parallels and people talk about comparisons to these two trials these two murder convictions a lot together because there's so many similar things about it and the underlying story is similar a lot of you know people a lot of people believe Avery was framed i'm not one of those people but a lot of people think the person that we're going to talk about today was framed and my opinion might be a little different on that, so it's it's which just, means you're
1: unbiased because I was going to ask you that at some point because you have adamantly said you don't think Avery
0: is innocent,
1: and yet what we will get into later on is the opposite verdict.
0: I think the comparisons are warranted. I don't. Um, They're not exactly the same. The, but there's it, parallels. Well, there's a really big difference between the two, and I'll I'll get into that what that difference is as we get deeper into this story. But you know, here's Avery again, um, trying to get a new trial, and as we talk about Lori Bembenek, who did the same thing, she was constantly trying to get a new trial, and you know, just to I think that the, the parallels of these stories are very interesting because of that. Because I I do believe one side and I don't the other. Yeah. You know, so that it, surprised it's, me. It's when just you told it's me. an interesting, and and I would be interested to you know when you hear this the story that we're going to talk about today, um, of what people's opinions are. Between this, these two stories, because this Avery, the Stephen Avery story is not going away. This murder happened of Teresa Halbeck in 2005. He um, obviously claims he didn't do it. He claims he was framed by Manitowoc County Police Department. That is now kind of changing and saying he was still framed, but now they're trying to say somebody else was framed. So he's kind of moving the goalposts a little bit, which is a little different than... What we're going to talk about today. But as we talk about today, I invite you to keep Avery's case in mind and listen to parallels between Laurie Benbenik and Stephen Avery, and not only listen to the parallels about them, but pick out the differences. And as we go along, I'm going to mention one difference which I think makes these two completely different stories.
1: And one minor point I just wanted uh, that I noticed as we were doing our research is that this the avery story um has similarities to the coons family murders that we talked about right because that family was kind of shunned they were kind of isolated they kind of did things on their own and the whole community kind of looked down on them as a result right so that podcast that episode of ours will be similar as far as those aspects of the avery case so a lot of the stuff that we talk about ties into that avery case which we will eventually
0: cover if you haven't listened to, episode, I think it was episode four, episode five, it was five. The, the Coons murders. Fascinating story out of um, Marathon County that, right, deals with a, a kind of a, a family under the radar a little bit, shunned by, by the community. And disregarded as a result. And no question about it. And bad things happened as a result. And, and uh, maybe treated a little bit differently, too, than by the people that uh, were supposed to be looking out for them. So keep keep these parallels in mind when you listen to the story that we're going to talk about of Lori Bembenek.
1: Run, baby, run.
0: All right, so let's set the scene to Wednesday, May 27th, 1981. 30-year-old Christine Schultz spent much of her day that day doing yard work at her home in Milwaukee, southern tip of Milwaukee, almost when you just about crossing to Oak Creek. Christine was a recently divorced mother of two. She lived with her boys ages 7 and 11 in what was known to be a pretty safe middle-class neighborhood. It was actually known to be a neighborhood in which a lot of police officers lived in and around. And Christine's ex-husband, Alfred Schultz, E-L-F-R-E-D, better known as Fred, so we'll continue to call him Fred, Fred. um, was a police officer. Uh, He actually built the home while they were married, and uh, after their divorce, Christine got the house um, and was living there with her two children. So on this day in late May, she's doing what you know a lot of Wisconsinites do in that time of year. She's working. Was drinking? Oh, (laughs) that possibly came on later, but you know she's kids are in bed. She's doing yard work, right? She's getting her yard ready for summer. Um, she has a friend who was uh, she was dating at the time, another police officer named Stu Honick was was helping her in the yard. And he's, Stu, he's a bit of a factor later on. He's he, Stu was also the former roommate of Fred Schultz. So, so that throws a little tidbit in there. We're getting into a bit of a triangle here. There's right? more that, about Stu that um, we'll learn later too. No doubt. You know, he's over there. He's helping her out. He's tilling her garden. You know, he lived within walking dis- distance of her. Again. Police officers lived in this neighborhood, and he lived about three or four blocks away from Christine Schultz, and he had walked over, and uh, he's helping her do do yard work. Her boys had come home later in the afternoon, presumably after school. Well, the, the older boy, Sean, was playing baseball after school, and the younger boy, Shannon, Shannon was, uh, was at a friend's house. So they had both returned home. Super normal th- stuff going on here, right? couple doing yard work. The school-age boys are hanging out with their friends and playing baseball and they come home. Uh, About eight o'clock or so, they all go inside for the night and they cook dinner and all four of them sit down and and they eat dinner at at the table. After dinner, the boys go upstairs to their room and they're hanging out while Christine and and Stu watch TV or they watch a movie on the couch or something until Christine drives Stu home. Again, three, four-minute drive there, three, four-minute drive back. She's barely gone—ten minutes tops, probably.
1: But he's not there anymore.
0: He's not there anymore. Now, when she comes home, they talk on the phone for another hour. So it's—you know—it's kind of this, kind of this honeymoon relationship. It seems like he kind of—I missed know, you in that four right, minutes right, you've been gone. Right, kind of. Like when, in high school, when you're on the phone with your girlfriend and neither of you are saying anything, you're just kind of... You, you hang up. No, you hang you, up. Oh, I thought you... Just kind of doing your up. own thing, but staying on the phone is kind of how this was. Just they, like hearing you breathe. They were talking about the upcoming Memorial Day weekend, and they were talking about plans for that and what they may be doing. So um, after that, she goes upstairs. She checks on her boys. They're sleeping. She goes into her room and uh, turns the TV on in her room and, and watches TV until she falls asleep. It's about 1130 at night now, right? Super normal stuff in a super normal suburban neighborhood. Now, what happens next is only known through pieced together police work, which isn't saying much. In a department that had issues. And uh, testimony of her boys, who were, again, were 7 and 11 at the time and just went through the worst night of their life. So now about 2.30 in the morning, this is what we surmise happened. Now we're in in the very morning of May 28th, 1981. This would be Thursday, May 28th. Somebody enters the house. It's unknown still today how. There was no signs of breaking. Right. Doesn't sound like, doesn't seem like anybody broke in. They got in either with a key, most likely, or an unlocked door. So they enter the home. They quietly walk upstairs and presumably enter Christine's room, finds her sleeping, which almost everybody is doing at 2.30 in the morning. They throw a gag in her mouth. They use a blue bandana to gag her mouth. She obviously wakes up. She starts struggling, but they're able to muzzle that with the gag, and they tie her up. And Now, everything after that is unknown, actually, how long the assailant was in with her or what happened after that. Because we're relying on the testimony of two children. right? But at some point, Sean, the older boy, 11 years old, is woken up by someone attempting to tie him up. So the assailant then, after they tie Christine up, they go into her boys' room and they try to start tying the boys up. Sean wakes up. He obviously sees what's going on. Somebody's trying to tie him up. He starts to struggle. He screams. You can imagine the scene. This is the scariest thing an 11-year-old could possibly imagine in their life, this going on. So Sean is struggling with this assailant that's trying to tie him up. The other, The younger boy, Shannon, who's sleeping in the same room, also hears this struggle and he wakes up and he he begins screaming and struggling with the attacker as well. So now the boys are putting up a fight. The assailant even Shannon starts kicking him. Right. So this obviously startles the attacker and he then leaves the boys' room, goes back into Christine's room. The boys say they hear what sounded like a firecracker and obviously now they're stunned. Right. They're they don't one of they they're seven and eleven years old. Right. You hear a firecracker which. They're not naive. They know what that firecracker was. They slowly open their door. They don't know if it's safe for them to go out, right? They probably know that it's not. But they slowly open their door. Sean starts to kind of slowly inch his way into the hallway when his mother's door busts open. And the attacker, again, runs out of the room, almost knocks Sean down in the hallway and they watch as the attacker runs down the stairs. And flees the house. And flees the house. So the boys now go into their mom's room, and they find her there, lying diagonally across the bed, face down, with an obvious gunshot to her back. You're 7 and 11 years old. What are you doing? Panicking. Right? Screaming. Imagine this. But so they, they, The they, older they, son had the wherewithal. The, 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 the crazy thing is, is they didn't panic. They, like, right. they went into the room, and they closed the door, and they barricaded the door. Right. Like, they had the wherewithal to do that.
1: And Shannon was kind of kind of frozen with fear, but from what I've
0: read, as you said, the older son, Sean, was, had the wherewithal to even make a call at that point. So they call Stu, right? They don't call 911 right now. They call Stu, and Sean tells Stu. Actually, he has another roommate at this time. The roommate answers the phone, gives the phone to Stu. It's Sean, and Sean's obviously frantic. Something happened to mom. And Stu's like, put her on the phone. And Sean says, I can't. She can't come to the phone. So Stu calls the police. Stu calls 911. And Stu, obviously, again, he's a police officer himself. He only lives a few blocks away. He bolts up from bed, gets in his car, and gets over there as quick as he can. And he gets there roughly the same time as the police do. And the front door, as you said, Mickey, was locked. They couldn't get in. So Sean comes down and and lets them in. So, But the front door, which is interesting, was locked. So Sean lets them in. Stu comes in. And Stu makes a comment, an interesting comment, when he's standing in Christine's room with the other officers. And he said something to the effect of, I knew something like this was going to happen. Freddie must have done it. Stu said that. Stu said that. So... Now, when this happened, not only the murder, unfortunately, but for everything that happened after this, this was a massive story. Worldwide attention, international sensation. It was worldwide. Huh? I, know oh. the, I know the North American continent I knew not a lot about it. but Talk show circuit. I mean, do, the Dr. Phil show had a play in this story. America's I, Most Wanted had they, a play in yeah, this story. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not just covering it. Oprah. They, like, Oprah had an interview with this woman. The, I mean, Dr. Phil actually impacted... This story. I mean, right. this was, everybody wanted a piece of this. Movies were made about it.
1: And we'll go into some detail about some of the books and movies and
0: actors that portrayed Bambi, who we'll get further into how she plays into this. It was a big deal for many, many reasons. But it was a big deal here we're at where, where Mickey and I are as well because Christine Schultz was from Appleton. Her family was here, still here, You're 40 years later. Some of them are still here. Her She's originally from Menominee, Michigan, but yeah, they settled moved, here. Moved here when she was three. She was uh, she grew up here, was raised here, went to high school here. She graduated from Xavier. I think the house they lived in was right on College Avenue, just west of downtown. My dad went to Xavier. There's a podcast about this story that came out earlier this year called Run, Bambi, Run. I'll give it mixed reviews. I don't think we're in the business of... of reviewing podcasts Critiquing. I think it's it's certainly worth a listen all right um, it's
1: well done I mean it's done by a professional group of people honestly. right
0: it's, it's it's an Apple original so it's it's well done you know but it's it's interesting they they do talk about Christine's upbringing and they talk about Appleton and they talk about cruising the Ave and you know that just which we both did right and that, that just kind of brings that home a little bit for us
1: and I think my dad might have been in a little older than Christine but maybe he didn't know her because he's never mentioned it. He was, you know, would have been that around that age.
0: You know, and, and Shannon, the, the, the seven-year-old, moved here after the murder. He was raised by Christine's sister in Appleton, graduated from West in 1991. We graduated from East in 92 and 93. I right. Mean, so we're in the same circles. Yep. You know, and after after Christine graduated from Xavier, she went on to UW La Crosse.
1: She was born Christine Jean Penning's, one of four children born to Earl and Alice Penning's in Menominee, Michigan. As I said,
0: Alice Penning's just passed away a couple of years ago in Appleton, twenty nineteen. So she goes on to UW La Crosse, and this is where she meets Fred Schultz, and uh, they they start dating. She gets pregnant. Um, They get married in 1969, and he, Fred, was from West Allis, so they moved back to the Milwaukee area, and he uh, ultimately become a police officer. And both of those sons, as we alluded to, were Fred's. Both of those sons were Fred's. Sean and Shannon are both Fred's sons also. Now, obviously, being a Milwaukee police officer, we've had extensive conversations on this podcast alone about problems with Milwaukee's police department especially around this time 70s 80s yeah. into the 90s they're well documented into you know if you go to the Dahmer situation the Walter Ellis situation which we've talked about systemic racism and sexism was rampant
1: just disorganization in general just I don't want to throw the word incompetence out but it was just disregarding
0: well the culture impacted the the police work. right there's no question about the it
1: the partying lifestyle was just uh that, the, that information that needs to be documented correctly was not always done so because people were having a good
0: time much of this of this um, you know systemic culture much of the rot within the Milwaukee PD around this time stems from their former chief of police in the 1960s to the mid-1990s he was pretty famous in his day and not really for good reasons Harold Breyer who ran that police department with an iron fist, supposedly. He was openly racist, staunchly against the civil rights movement. Eugene Kane, a former longtime Milwaukee reporter, said that Breyer was, quote, a racist administrator, a borderline fascist, and the man who contributed to the segregated reputation of Milwaukee more than any other, unquote.
1: And almost proud of it by the sounds of it.
0: Absolutely, he was. And obviously still today, Milwaukee is still one of the most segregated cities in the country now, it was a culture where women and minorities were often, often discriminated against. Not only in the community by Milwaukee PD, but also on the force. Women were not allowed to apply for promotions. B- qualified black officers were routinely passed over for promotions. Black officers were forbidden to ride in all-black squad cars, or they were forbidden to assemble in all-black groups. <laughs> Meaning, like they're. Like, there had to be a white guy around to, like, make sure you're staying in line? Like, what What are we doing here? Like, they're being
1: babysat or they're in prison. Infractions for which white men got free pass.
0: Black and female recruits were severely punished. He was known throughout the country. So the New York Times did almost like an expose on this guy, on Harold Breyer. That's you know,
1: that's how you get fame, one
0: way or another. I guess. He, he was well known. He would send officers to homes of people who... Who criticized his police force? Like who? You know, this guy Harold Breyer, was a dictator. Was a piece of work, but with emphasis you know, on the dick. It was a, a a good old boys culture there for for decades. He got away with it, and he started
1: to believe in his power, and he got away with it. So you just kept.
0: He got away with it for a long time. Right. Yeah, I mean, if you were a woman or a minority, and you told the line, which pretty much means you keep your mouth shut. Yeah, you just do what you're told. You know, you might be okay, maybe not but you might be okay. But if you didn't, your life is going to be made pretty difficult. So, again, there's just too much stuff here. You know, it seems like we're kind of beating a dead horse when we talk about Milwaukee and the incompetence and systemic isms of that police station. But During this time, it was you a can't very real deny it. it was a very real factor during these couple of
1: decades or these few decades, right?
0: And, and, and like we said, Breyer was getting away with it until a man by the name of Ernest Lacey who was an unarmed, how often do you hear this, an unarmed black guy walking down Wisconsin Avenue in Milwaukee in 1981 in the summer, going to a gas station to get a soda, while the police were apparently looking for a a, a rapist that was on the loose, and all that they knew was that the, race, what the rapist was African-American. So obviously two cops see Ernest Lacey walking down Wisconsin Avenue, and hey, he fits the bill, right? He's African-American. And they're looking for a rapist, which Lacey was not. Lacey did not commit the crime of what they were looking for, but they tried to uh, apprehend him. He ran. They detained him. They tackled him. A scuffle ensued, and Ernest Lacey died in police custody while being held face down on the ground with a knee in his back.
1: That sounds familiar. Right. And uh, what I love, my mind automatically jumps to is because he fled, he ran, they're going to say, well, that must mean he's he's guilty. He knows he's guilty. Right. But you're a black man. You're screwed either way. And he knew it. Right.
0: Now, this did lead to protests. This did lead to protests in Milwaukee in the summer of 1981. Breyer refused to cooperate with a federal investigation into the death, saying that the officers did nothing wrong. Just flatly refused to cooperate. So he was forced to resign over this as the public lost all confidence in him. Finally, you don't say, what the hell took so long? Way to figure it out. So the police force in Milwaukee 70s 80s and 90s it was a clusterfuck again heavily documented this isn't our opinion this well, is the way this is we've that only had
1: 16 episodes and this is only we've had two or three stories addressing this and there's way right. more documentation. it's a recurring about
0: theme it. there's no way you can't talk about it because as we said it impacts what happens there right that culture led to what happened with Walter Ellis. That's why these crimes are happening, that because they're allowed to. Culture impacted what happened with Jeffrey Dahmer. It did. Right. There's nothing you can do to deny this anymore. So, you know, it's a recurring theme in this story, too, is shoddy police. But, you know, three weeks after the murder of Christine Schultz, they did make an arrest. Lorencia Bembenek, the 22-year-old new wife of a recently remarried Fred Schultz so who is Lorencia Bembenek right the woman who wound up turning the world on his head for a few years well she starts out pretty much as a normal Milwaukee girl right born in 1958
1: August 15th born Lorencia and Bembenek
0: She's a pretty normal upbringing. Her parents were blue-collar. Her father was a former police officer who left the force.
1: Youngest of three children, born to Joseph and Virginia Bimbenek in Milwaukee. And as you said, Father Joseph previously worked for Milwaukee Police Department, but he quit after witnessing, as he described, quote, corruption
0: with the department, to say the least. Right. So good on him. You know, he still felt the job, though, was noble. Right? He later ended up working as a carpenter after he quit. He look, he worked most of his life in in construction. Mom was a homemaker. Laurencia had two older sisters. She went to Catholic school, wound up graduating from Bayview high school.
1: she was and she also had a brother who was born prematurely and died. And as a result, she was the child that the family prayed for, who survived and prayed for. and as a re, you'll you'll see a pattern as to who she was because they they adored her. And she was given a life of indulgence as a result of her being this baby that survived after her brother died prematurely.
0: So she goes to Catholic school as a youngster. She doesn't really subscribe to that traditional Catholic lifestyle. Said to be a very good student, though not scholastically driven.
1: <laughs> nice way to put it, huh?
0: <laughs> right. Um, she was a bit of an outcast in the kind of the Catholic world. She liked to have fun. She saw some issues with the elders, I guess, in the Catholic system there. She, were, she was called a slut. She could
1: be by described. One. Her personality, before we get into that, could be described as intelligent but aloof, or quiet and shy, or cool and manipulative. So she did have
0: different sides to her, and she knew how to play people already by that age. But again, pretty normal upbringing. Right. Which nothing teenager doesn't have all that going on? Nothing in her background that would lead you to believe that she you know she would wind up living the life that that she did and I, I remember she just
1: always showed an independent streak and like you said
0: later on we'll get into
1: her sisters even saying she lived a life of indulgence but it's possibly due to her parents being so happy that she was born but I don't believe it all it leads to all that she just had this independent streak she had confidence and that is what starts this off, as we're going to get into. She then attended Bryant and Stratton College in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where she earned her associate's degree in fashion merch- merchandising management.
0: So after high school, she she works various jobs. She works at the Limited, Vic Tanny's, the Boston store. Um, and at this point, she also starts modeling. You know, she was 5'10", blonde, very attractive, modeling in Milwaukee in the 1970s. You know, there's not going to be a lot of glamour in that. But she was once Miss March of a Schlitz calendar for a local promotion. There's Schlitz again. We talked about them. Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company. It was Um, just
1: a brief stint in in 1978.
0: So she was Miss March in 1978. She was fully clothed in that shot. It wasn't anything weird or nasty. She's fully clothed. She's lying on a couch, I believe. She's got a a pearl necklace. It's, it's It's a pretty... An actual necklace an actual made of pearl pearls. necklace, right. yes, thank you. Right. It's a pretty mundane photo, um, in, then, in today's considered... in today's standards, mm-hmm. right? right? Right. But you know these jobs aren't doing anything for her, right? She's not making any money, and you know with a degree in fashion merchandising, she's working at several retail stores, right? The Limited, the Boston store. She starts modeling, as we had mentioned.
1: Also became a feminist group supporter. She started showing that independence a little stronger. She was turned away from Boston Stores Management Training Program for it once again being too young. Yeah.
0: So on her 21st birthday, she sees an ad in the paper indicating that applications were being taken by the Milwaukee Police Department. And women and minorities, of course, are strongly urged to apply. So she did. And again, you know, she's looking for purpose Right. Her dad was a police officer. He saw a lot of garbage that he didn't like, so he left that line of work. This might have been a little ode to her dad. She idolized her dad, seemed to take after her dad much more than her mom. She was a bit of a, of a tomboy. So this made sense for her. So she applied. She applied to be a police officer. And uh, you know there was some preliminary testing that she had to do, which she passed. And uh, she soon found herself in the police academy which she graduated from sixth in her class. In 1980. And soon she found herself on the Milwaukee Police Force. And this is where, I, I believe it was in the academy, where she got the nickname Bambi. And which it, she always hated. Which she always hated, right. And it's likely some kind of a play on her. I, I don't know if she really knows how she got it, but it's some kind of a play of, uh, of her name. And, uh, you know, she, she was popular with other male
1: She was beautiful, striking. She was long, bleach blonde, tall, slender, beautiful face, and and striking figure. Over and over you read that, and that's why she got sometimes treated better and sometimes treated worse.
0: So she gets that nickname Bambi, and this is, you know, in the the 70s, and here we are today, 50 years later almost, and that is still (laughs) sticks with her name. And she hated it the entire time. Right. So, and this is also when she begins kind of to see what the Milwaukee Police Department is. It's kind of the things that is verifying, or I guess I should say validating from what her dad would say. But it was kind of almost like a fraternity. Lots of parties, lots of promiscuity internally throughout the department. Now, again, this is underneath Harold Breyer, who kind of knew what everybody was doing elsewhere, but didn't really know about this stuff. And with
1: all that partying... She herself would say she suffered endless campaign of abuse and
0: harassment during training alone. So he didn't necessarily run that department with iron fist, did he? I mean, that's a that's a show, right? Only towards certain people once they uh, right. get up, right? So this is also where she uh, met what would become one of her greatest or best friends, I, I guess you could say one of one of her uh, one of the biggest players in this story.
1: Whether that person was a friend or not, she was assigned to the M- Milwaukee Police Department's South Side 2nd District, and this is where she ran into.
0: Miss Judy Zess, who was another young female cop, who they went to, through the academy together. And at this time, Lori is noticing that female and minority cops, usually the young recruits kind of in her class or just above her, are disappearing Right. Like they're being dismissed from the force or they abruptly resign. Fired or quitting for very minor reasons, from what I understand. She also realizes that there are no women within the department above a simple patrol officer. According to her, she would hear, you know, as, as Mickey said, pretty much unchecked language, you know, racist, sexist remarks. Cops would would um, they would kind of seek out and patrol gay communities and gay neighborhoods yell at them and call them names through their through their radios uh
1: like back then the, ster- the construction workers had a stereotype that'd be whistling towards people or making lewd comments as they walk by
0: yeah that's what these
1: people were protecting and serving the community were doing on a regular basis and getting away with it with because nothing the being law. done right? well, they're the law what so, are you going to
0: do about it so one day Lori gets called into internal affairs and she's told that someone had reported her for smoking marijuana at a party. One of these parties that she went to and she was admittedly on her own partying a lot right right she was certainly no stranger to uh socializing and having fun
1: as i mentioned before indulgence was a big factor in her life all the way through it
0: but an anonymous tipster turned her in and of course she denies this she said she didn't smoke weed you know milwaukee police under harold Breyer was very much in your business you could not have sex out of marriage According to Harold Breyer. <laughs> with all you the could, other things going you, exactly, on. Exactly, right? You could not cohabitate with somebody of the opposite sex. Like, this is the stuff that Harold Breyer was concerned about. Uh, but yelling. Good, good Christian tactics. Yelling gay slurs through your police radio was a okay. And all the partying. In his book.
1: As we'll find out
0: later, there's. Like nude pictures in public of these people
1: that are protecting and serving, supposedly.
0: So somebody anonymously, as Mickey said, turns her in for smoking weed at a party. She denies it. That kind of goes away.
1: Her speculation was that she blamed the charge of the wife of a police officer that accosted her at a previous party. And that woman complained of how she dressed and insinuated that she might be leading her husband on. The charge was never substantiated, as Scott said, but Lori's opinion was that this woman was jealous, and that's why she came up with this anonymous tip that she speculated it was this woman to begin with.
0: It seems that there was a lot of intermarriage um, goings-on. Extra affairs? Anyways, at the Milwaukee PD at this point. So she denied that charge. That charge kind of went away through internal affairs. But later on, a couple weeks later, she goes to a Shaka Khan concert one night with... Good old Judy Zess. I just want to say Shaka Khan. How can you not want to smoke a big bowl after listening shaka-con. to that? Shaka Khan. Chaka Khan. Chaka Khan. Chaka Khan. Shaka Khan. Let me rock
1: it. Let me rock it. Chaka Khan. With Judy Zess.
0: Now, while at this concert, from Lori's perspective, she leaves to go to the bathroom. She comes back. Judy Zess and a couple of the other friends that they went with weren't there. And she finds out from another friend that they were actually arrested for smoking weed. At the concert. So again, Judy's S is booked, right? So the police department knows this happened. They come to Lori. Lori has to make, because she's a police officer and this happens, she has to make an incident report of what happened. Off-duty police officer report. So she makes a report and says in her mind, you know, from her perspective, what she saw and knew, which was nothing. She wasn't smoking marijuana. She didn't see Judy smoking marijuana, so she, that was her report. She wanted
1: to deny the charges because she knew, she was saying she didn't do it, and she didn't want to
0: incriminate her friend. But unbeknownst to her, Judy Zess also made a report, huh. which implicated Lori this in smoking friend, marijuana. <laughs> and remember this, Judy Very Zess important makes a report implicating Lori doing something she shouldn't have done. This leads to Lori getting kicked off the force. Fired for filing a false report. So even that,
1: in my opinion, that sounds like a simple reason to fire someone. you think you'd get a warning or some kind of probation period. Granted, she was new to the department. That's what we were saying before, how easily you would be removed if you were female.
0: Right. So in in her mind, this is just going along with everything that she's been seeing. more proof. She's been on the force a month and she's fired. She's a female. And she she's didn't even on,
1: technically do anything wrong except try to protect her friend, which maybe was wrong, but you could understand.
0: Not only did she kick, get kicked off the force, but she believes the police are actually blackballing her because now she can't get another job, right? They find out she's, she was an officer that, kicked, that got kicked off the, the force. She can't find a job.
1: Even with her dad having the clout that he had had in the past.
0: So she's pretty lost at this point, right? And she's pretty depressed. She finally got a job that she felt some purpose at. And to her, in her perspective, again, and and I will say, you know, I've read her autobiography. I've watched a lot of her interviews. Lori does have an excuse for everything. Sure, Lori Lori is, I'm, I'm, Lori's kind of always the one that never did anything. She just got kind of always got caught up in this shit.
1: But she is well-spoken. She's articulate. She's always been mentioned as an intelligent woman. Which makes you, even further to your point, makes you think that maybe she's manipulative and trying to get her way. But Mm -hmm. it was never, you never got the feeling she was holding herself accountable for a lot of what happened to her. Right.
0: So now she has no job. She's lost. She does have a little bit of income that she's getting from unemployment benefits that she's pretty much partying away. She's still hanging out with these people. Right, she's still going to parties. She's still drinking. She's still blowing her money at this stuff. And this is to her ad- admittance as well. I mean, this is her admitting this yeah, stuff. Yeah, she didn't she, deny that. Right? right, she was. She was, as Mickey said, indulging in lots of this stuff. Now, somewhere down the line, by some of these police officers, she sees photos of an annual picnic that the police have in a public park in Milwaukee, which is kind of an kind of an orgy. Maybe, you know, there's photos of, there's pictures of this stuff. This is how comfortable they were. Fred Schultz, at at this particular party she was looking at these photos of, Fred Schultz was the photographer. He's in these photos with a camera. He's also in these posing, buck naked, on picnic tables. There were nude cops all over the place, male and female. They had wet t-shirt contests. They had wet jock contests. I just kind of threw up in my mouth a yeah, little bit. thanks for Jesus emphasizing Christ. that word, too. You know, and this pisses her off, right? She just gets fired from the force for, um, from her perspective, rumors of her smoking weed. You can't even prove that she was, but this is fine.
1: And to emphasize the point here, this was at a park, this incident where she got the pictures from. But there was also supposedly a lot of occurrences that happened at the officer's hangout bar in River West, Milwaukee called Tracks Tavern. A lot of stuff would happen there, too, because it was basically a cop's hangout. So this stuff went on a lot. The pictures came from one particular incident where they were playing volleyball, dancing, naked and semi-naked. So it was, like you said, potentially an orgy, just lewd, obnoxious behavior you don't expect from your police officers.
0: So you can't cohabitate with somebody of the opposite sex mm, that you're right, married to. Right. But you can have... Naked volleyball and uh, dancing and orgies, whatever leads to... Because I'm sure they were all sober and very responsible when they were naked. No question about it, of course. You know, this this pisses her off. And now, obviously, this is more than a pattern of women being treated differently than men. Women and minorities being... Right, yes. So she files a claim. She starts looking into legal action. So she files a claim with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. She's looking to file a lawsuit of sex discrimination based on her firing and how different men were treated than women. And she was also, and this was the much bigger deal. She was also going to be a witness in a federal class action lawsuit with the U.S. Attorney's Office against Harold Breyer, who they say, now this is the reason why you would see women and minorities disappearing all the time, they say that they're taking federal dollars designed for outreach and attracting female recruits and minority recruits, hiring them, firing them, and pocketing the money. And she was supposed to stand up against them as an order from the Equal Opportunity Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. They were telling her she has to do this. So this was a class action lawsuit um, accusing the Milwaukee Police Department and Harold Breyer of corruption for um, misuse of funds, pretty much. They're taking federal dollars that are used to, that are designed to help in recruiting females and minorities. They would hire them. They would fire them, and they would continue getting those dollars.
1: The grant money would, would come, and then they'd fire them once the probationary period ended.
0: Now, soon after this, bad things start to happen to Lori Bembenik. The police union abandons her, right? They drop her case. Unemployment commission rules against her. Not only do they stop her unemployment benefits, they make her pay back the $1,600 that she was paid out. Also, somebody places a dead rat on her car because obviously she's a rat. Right? All right, so there's sure. all kinds of stuff going on. At least all there wasn't co- a horse's head or something. That's all coincidences, I'm sure. I'm right. sure this all had nothing to do right. with what the action she was taking against the police department. So again, she's lost. She doesn't have a job. She's having a hard time finding a job. So now she turns her attention to the Air Force.
1: Well, in this time... It's, there's major rumors. And if you look up this story at all, they'll, they'll say she was a playboy bunny. But the fact is she actually worked as a waitress at the playboy club in Lake Geneva for
0: about three weeks. So So that was way blown out of proportion. So she gets, she has no money. She has no job. Right. And now she's ordered to pay back $1,600 to the unemployment office. So she gets a job in Lake Geneva at the Playboy Club, makes back the sixteen hundred bucks,
1: and leaves. You're wearing the skimpy outfit with a little tail, right. As a waitress, like a Hooters girl, basically,
0: <laughs> right? So she's a cocktail waitress, makes her sixteen hundred bucks, and leaves. And still today, the first thing you see after the name Lori Bembenik is former Playboy. She books. was there for three weeks, right.
1: <laughs> At some club. No
0: one ever even knew existed. Even even grow, you know, growing up, you know, I this when she was when she came back here from Canada that's when i really remembered this case but what i remember from that is hearing about her coming back i, I never really knew the specifics about this case right but i, I either, always right. knew and thought she was a playboy playmate right. i thought she was in the magazine that's how people right that's how people because, portrayed it because it's so synonymous with her name
1: and it was 3 weeks she was there as a waitress yeah
0: right i mean so at the at the Playboy Club which is a cool it's still there it's a cool place Oh it is I didn't it's even know it's not a Playboy Club existed. anymore oh, yeah oh, okay. it's, it's the so it's the Grand Geneva resort You've been Lake, there too I have I was there See, I
1: leave the state when I visit stuff You've visited a lot of cool stuff within Oh it's the state. A, it's
0: a, it's a cool place it's so it's I don't want to say it's dated cuz that you kind of get a bad connotation with that dated to me it sounds like it's old and dingy it's not it's not a fancy place it's, it's a cool it's historical but you kind of have that vibe, yeah. Right. You kind of have that Hugh Hefner kind of vibe. Oh. There's all this kind of leather furniture, and it, it, it's kind of dark, and it kind of brings you back to that era. Like when you go into Lambeau Field, and you feel all the, the history mystique, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and you know, when you're walking down the halls, in a lot of the rooms, there's there's a plaque outside the room, and it's like, this is the uh, Sammy Davis Jr. room. If Sammy Davis Jr. stayed there, sure, or the, Bob Hope stayed in this room, or the something. Rat Pack would have so, been here. Right. Was there. It was. You know, who Hugh Hefner built that place. Sure. That was a Playboy Club. And it's it's just it's a cool I was there for a conference sort of in the last year before COVID, so not tw- probably twenty nineteen. Did Hugh invite you there? he was I think he was already dead by then, oh. so he didn't invite so me. So post mortem he invited yeah, you. Sure, yeah. Oh, sure. But um, cool place. You know, now, again, not a real fancy schmancy place. But you can you can certainly get the vibe of, of that this is at one time was uh, a place like this. It's just kind of like a golf resort now. Sure, today. You I know, believe that. You know, there's a millions of those around. Yeah, not not a Playboy playmate. She was simply a cocktail waitress at a Playboy club for three weeks to win three back. Three weeks. To make her money back. So <laughs> now one day during this time, she's sitting in a bar in a Mexican restaurant in Milwaukee. It's like midnight on a weeknight or something. Two plainclothes cops walk in that she recognizes. She saw them at parties. She met them at parties and they recognize her.
1: Probably saw them in pictures.
0: Probably saw them in pictures. And she actually did see at least one of these in pictures because one was our buddy Alfred. Alfred Schultz,
1: Schultz or Freddie.
0: Now, obviously, she had heard stories of him and another cop, Stu, who were actually roommates. But Stu was now dating Fred's ex wife, which would make for a really awkward roommate situation. Right. And she knew that there was some bad blood between them. So, you know, his and he also had quite a reputation of maybe there's a reason Christine was an ex wife. You know, I mean he wasn't known to be one of Laurie's Catholic schoolmates growing up. You sure. know, he was a little
1: He knew of her because she was jobless essentially except for a babysitting job she was doing. And Fred knew the woman that Lori was babysitting for. That's how he came across who she was.
0: So when they met at this no-name Mexican restaurant in Milwaukee, so begins a whirlwind romance between Lori and Fred Schultz, who was 10 years older than her. He's now a detective. He's not a patrol officer anymore. So she was pretty easy prey for somebody like Fred Schultz. Now, Fred also has his issues, or also had his issues, at the Milwaukee Police Department.
1: Fred was known to be, like, as you, as Scott said, roughly 10 years older, but his nickname was Disco. He was known as a clubber who liked to dance. He had a loud personality, loud actions, loud clothing, even loud hair, loud everything. And he was known as a jokester. So, as much as Lori was known to have kind of taken over a room when she walked in, this guy surpassed her he walked in and he was the life
0: of the party type of guy whether you liked him or not he was everybody knew he was there fred might have had a little bit of a happy trigger finger as well Mm -hmm. so in 1975 you know fred is still a fairly young cop at this time and he's a patrol officer and he gets a call from that actually originated in glendale which is a suburb of milwaukee and outside of fred's jurisdiction but maybe fred was playing hero ball or something, and he, and he thought, you know, maybe he needs to respond to this 911 call, a plainclothes officer arresting a couple of vagrants in a store or in a, in a, in a restaurant in Glendale. So there wasn't any kind of, uh, that we know of, life or death situation going on. But Fred still uh, felt the need to respond to this. So as Fred and his partner at this time um, respond to this call in Glendale, which is, again, outside their jurisdiction... Uh, G. Robert Sasson, G. Robert Sasson, a Glendale policeman for seven years, had taken one of two men suspected of pandering into custody outside a Glendale tavern. Sasson, dressed in street clothes and holding his revolver, was crouched over the man he had taken into custody when Milwaukee officers entered without notice.
1: He was off duty, as you mentioned. That, that's important.
0: Patrolman Alfred Schultz. Said Sassen's gun was aimed at patrolman Dennis Zeebel's head, and he felt his partner's life was in danger. Schultz fired a shot, and when Sassen did not drop his gun, fired three more times. Sassen had two wounds in his chest and two in his right arm. He was 30 years old. Camilla Sassen said the Milwaukee patrolman used poor judgment. So this is, this is a... a a scene in where Fred Schultz and his partner responded to a 911 call that was outside of their jurisdiction. They saw a man with a gun and immediately shot the man with a gun, and it turned out that that man was a police officer.
1: And you're armed. Do you think you'd, you know, read the situation or realize that they're not going to be firing so you can maybe communicate before you do anything?
0: Sasson's wife said, quote, It was a lack of good judgment you acquire for maturity and work in the field. So Alfred Schultz was exonerated of this. It was deemed to be an accident in which these things always kind of seem to be. It was a, quote, very sad situation, Deputy District Attorney Michael Ash said, after reviewing testimony of witnesses. But he said it was accidental because it involved a case of mistaken identity and self-defense. Milwaukee police did not know the good guys from the bad guys, a Glendale officer said. So they burst onto the scene having no idea what the situation is and shoot the first man that they see. Without warning, right? Never identifying themselves. They just shoot. And a 30-year-old
1: cop. Fellow cop. Is dead. So cops killing cops is always a big deal.
0: So now, obviously, like, as we said, Schultz is exonerated from this. This is deemed to be an accident. But uh, as, as the dead man's wife said, there was poor judgment by the Milwaukee officer, and there's going to be a continued pattern of poor judgment by uh, one Mr. Fred Schultz. So soon after the romance between Fred and and Lori begins, Stu and Fred get in a fight, which obviously was bound to happen. Right. Fred A little awkward. Fred and Stu get in a fist fight, and Fred winds up getting evicted from his apartment that he shared with Stu. So Fred and Lori move in with Judy's S. Sure. And her
1: now boyfriend.
0: Judy has quite a reputation as a party animal, as does Fred, obviously. They're obviously linked to affairs of all kinds of people. And as Mickey said, Judy is now dating somebody else in that building. Tom Gartner is his name, who is a bodybuilder, right? Obviously, from what we hear, was a pretty massive guy. These
1: are all pretty people. I mean, he he better be.
0: He also happened to be a drug runner.
1: Sure. You got to be big if you're going to do that. And
0: he also... It's not stupid. (laughs) He also happened to hate cops. Why? Because he was a drug runner. And he was also... (laughs) The best friend of a cop that was killed in Glendale a few years prior named G. Robert Sasson. Huh,
1: we just talked about that. That's weird. What a weird, uncomfortable situation. It's, it's,
0: it's, I mean, this is a Netflix movie. Right. This is, right? It's, and this, it's almost incestual how creepy it is.
1: Like, why are you people agreeing to live together? I mean, how desperate are you? I would live on the street before I'd welcome myself to a situation like that, wouldn't you?
0: Milwaukee's small, but it's not that small. My God, find I mean, another you, place. You move into an apartment, and there's the brother of the guy that you killed. Right.
1: <laughs> Go find a van down by the river or something. My
0: God. So the uh, the the whirlwind romance of Fred and Lori uh, gets moving pretty quick. Yeah. And they get married within two months, right? They actually weren't allowed to get married in Wisconsin because— he hadn't been divorced from Christine he, long enough For yet.
1: six months, you need to be divorced, and he hadn't been.
0: So they run down to uh, Illinois and get married, and then they find out— Waukegan, that Illinois. They find out that that marriage was voided. So they had to wind up getting married again. So I guess it's mm. something that they really wanted. Right, right? November I mean, they of, Yeah, they
1: made the right decision. Yeah, it was only—it was about a three- or four-month period. But, yeah, in November of 1981, they were remarried. Wisconsin judge had ruled that the original marriage was invalid so they're making good decisions left and right
0: you can see the circle of people that we're dealing with here yeah right? I mean you have a massively corrupt police force you have orgasmic police officers <laughs> nice. living nice. together partying together
1: you're gonna break into some comic
0: book you hero have name. drugs all over the place alcohol all over the place obviously it's going to end out perfectly for everybody I mean, what could possibly go wrong? So, according to Lori, Fred is always complaining of Stu and Christine. He actually got Stu in trouble at the force because he reported Stu for sleeping with somebody he's not married to. And then he actually made Stu think that it was Lori that got Stu in trouble on the force. So, these are great people all around. Right. Have each other's backs. They're mm-hmm. loyal. Lots of, A lot of good judgment all over the place.
1: And for the record, at the time, Lori still trying to find work. She was working as a health club personal trainer and a security guard at Marquette University's public safety department.
0: That will play in later. What also will play in later is that Judy's boyfriend, Tom, the drug runner and best friend of a slain cop and bodybuilder goes to prison for obviously running cocaine. This will also, as we said, come into play quite a bit later.
1: At some point, Zess moved out and finances got tight. Because Lori was having a hard time finding work and income. Schultz was also paying a monthly mortgage of his ex-wife's house, which was $383 a month. And monthly child support payments, which were $365 a month. That adds up quickly when you don't have a whole lot of income coming
0: in. And their own living expenses. Right.
1: right? Especially with this lavish lifestyle that they're living, partying and doing drugs and alcohol and all that stuff. That stuff adds up quickly.
0: So we moved to the night of the murder. And on that night, Lori actually has plans to go out with a friend that evening. Fred is at work. I think Fred worked 12-hour shifts or 10 I think he worked 9 to 9 or uh, maybe it was 6 to 6. It was something like that. He, he worked nights. Lori, as I said, had plans to go out with a friend that night. The friend actually wound up calling and telling her that she didn't feel well. She was sick, so she didn't want to go out. So Lori stays home. So Fred, like I said, is working that night. His partner that night happens to be a guy by the name of Michael Durfee. And they're working. They apparently get called out to a burglary. And while they're leaving that scene, according to their report, according to their report, they hear over the radio of an incident on Ramsey Street. Obviously, this piques Fred's attention as that's where his sons live with his ex-wife on Ramsey Street. Find out that the address is that house. So they beeline over there, obviously. That's his family. That's his children. Now, you have an ex-husband on the scene of a murder of his ex-wife walking around. Obviously, his kids are there. He's expected to be there, right? I mean, he brings his kids over to the neighbor's house. There's no, that I have found, any kind of report of interaction of what happened between him and his kids that night. Like, what happened? I didn't read anything at all. All we know is that Fred winds up calling Lori, tells her that Christine is murdered and the kids are at a neighbor's house. I would really like to find some kind of a memoir or recollection about what that initial meeting was like Um, but we don't have an account like that but Sean is able to describe the attacker as best he could Right, he's the 11 year old, he's the one that was accosted by the attacker that obviously killed his mother he says that the attacker is a man in a mask he was very clear about this Right, said it sounded like a man. It made grunting noises throughout the struggle, and if you're fighting with somebody, you're bound to make grunting noises, right? He said it sounded like a man. It had man hands. Broad shoulders. Now the brothers did differ a little bit on what the person was wearing. Sean, the older boy, said that he was wearing a green canvas jacket. He described it like an army jacket without camouflage. So it's a bit you know, it seems like a green fatigue jacket. Shannon said it looked more like a green jogging suit. And when they ran downstairs, they noted that the attacker was wearing black shoes, which they said was similar to police shoes. That cops wear. But that that quote right there, similar to what a cop would wear, was a big deal. And also a reddish-colored
1: ponytail. Right.
0: So now when Fred and Michael Durfee arrived to Fred's apartment, so they, they have left now the murder scene. It's now about 6.30 in the morning. And they come to Fred's apartment where Lori's at. The first thing that happens when they get to the apartment is Fred tells Michael Durfee to check Lori's car for heat to see if it seems like it'd been run. Durfee checks the car. It's cold. Doesn't seem like it's been run at all. So there's an indication there that Fred is already kind of thinking something. Mm-hmm. Right? If he, The first thing they do when they drive up before they even get in the apartment, check Lori's car. Durfee goes over there, feels her car is cold, hasn't been run at all. So they get in the apartment, and they go into their bedroom, the master bedroom, where Fred kept an off-duty revolver. It was a thirty-eight Special off-duty revolver. Durfee here inspects the gun. has it been fired recently. If a gun is fired within the last few hours, you're going to know it. It's going to smell. It's going to have residue on it. And if it doesn't, it's going to be obviously cleaned. This gun clearly had not been fired you according know, to Durfee's report. According to Durfee's inspection in a long time. He even made a comment to Fred about, you know, Fred, you got you to dust these every once in a while or something like that. The gun clearly had not been fired, according to Michael Durfee. And he simply returned it to Fred, and that was that. Gives it back to Fred.
1: What I read in one or two instances is that in their drive home, Fred attempted to jump out of the moving vehicle in a supposed suicide attempt. Whether that's true or not, it seems like a possibility because at this point Fred might be panicking who knows what's going through his head his kids were in danger his ex-wife is now dead and all this stuff's going through his head he doesn't know if he's going to be accused because he's the ex-husband he's got to be going kind of frantic so maybe he just was overwhelmed and and possibly tried to jump out of the car he didn't but I read that there was an attempt
0: yeah that that is out there I did I did it's not everywhere but it is mentioned that he did. Um, attempt to get out of the car now whether you can say that's a suicide attempt or I, maybe would, to escape. I would right. i would question that because they weren't they weren't on a highway right. they, they lived like on. 15 blocks away from the house so
1: maybe he was just freaking out try, and right. to run away try to get
0: the hell out of the car yeah um, but certainly, uh, if true, a sign of panic, no doubt. Well,
1: I, especially because he knows they're going back to check out his revolver. If nothing else, maybe he's just trying to flee or something. Who knows what's going through it, if it even happened.
0: And according to Lori as well, and this is in Lori's autobiography, they did take that off duty revolver down to police headquarters, tested it, inspected it. Seems to be a very minimal inspection. Right. But there didn't seem to be any reason to do any more because it doesn't, nobody thought that that gun. Had been fired. So they gave the gun at back the time. At the time. They gave the gun back to Fred. And Fred presumably put it back in his room. Or did he? Nobody really knows. So now, after all this, you know, we're left with a 30-year-old dead ex-wife of Milwaukee detective, a mother of two children by an intruder, right? That's a massive story. Is there danger to the community, right? Does does the city of Milwaukee need to be freaked out that there's a home intruder, murdering people. Is there a serial killer? All right. So Milwaukee now is There under, was a lot of those at the time no question throughout the country yeah. as we've already discussed. So now Milwaukee PD is under a lot of pressure to solve this. So, you know, the investigation ensues. It actually starts that night before Fred and Durfee even get back to the apartment. Two other cops go over to Lori's house to interview her. They're looking for everybody in this circle, right? Anybody... Stu, Lori, Fred, Judy, anybody that knows these people, right? They're they're going to talk to, as as they should. And obviously, Fred was, was likely a suspect right away, the sure. ex-husband. ex-husband. Stu was probably a, a, a suspect right away. Boyfriend. You know? So they go and they talk to Lori, uh, you know, and they ask her, you have a jogging suit? No. You have a gun? No. You know, so it, it wasn't a... a an uh, in interrogation by any means. It was a preliminary just interview. Checker that and all the eyes. Right. Now, for some reason, and nobody really knows why, and this I think is very interesting. As we said, the two boys gave kind of supposedly gave two different descriptions of what the person was wearing. Sean said it looked like a green army jacket without camouflage. The younger boy, Shannon, said it looked more like a green jogging suit. The media and the police seemed to clamor on to the fact that it was a green jogging suit. Why? Everything else from Sean is what they took, right? It was wearing a mask, likely a man. Red ponytail, black shoes. Right, everything else they took from Sean. But when there's this discrepancy between the two about what the intruder was wearing that was green, they went with the green jogging suit. So that makes me think a little bit. When did Shannon say that? Did somebody maybe put that memory in his head? Was that suggested to him, maybe? Just throwing it out there, I don't know.
1: Right, something to keep in mind as we go through
0: the rest of the details, especially once the trial starts. Now, eventually things start forming a bit of a pattern here and starts pointing to one person and starts pointing to the person in the story that does not have an alibi. Fred had an alibi, right? He was working. Right, he was working, and they were investigating a robbery when this went down, right?
1: it may not have been the details he gave, but he was on duty.
0: He was on duty, and he got caught in a lie. They were not investigating a robbery. There was a robbery call that came out, but it was two other officers that went to take care of it. Fred and Michael Durfee were drinking at George's, George's Pub. Pub
1: and Grub when they responded. This And this, from what I read over and over, it was a normal night. This, these were normal actions. But as you said, not
0: filed on the police report for obvious no, reasons. Of course. They lied about the alibi, but obviously they don't want to say what they were really doing. Now, they didn't; they weren't only at George's Pub. They were at other places, too. They were bar hopping right. with the owner. Drinking on tra- duty. Right. George's Pub. Now, it, it's so also, they weren't doing good things. Of course. Again, judgment with Fred, right? Now, right. it was also found out 10 years later in unsealed police reports that Fred had routinely been caught perjuring himself in unrelated cases. But lie or no lie, it's still an alibi, right? He's not at the murder scene right. at the we time. We know he did happens. not commit this murder. He, he didn't pull the trigger, put right. it that way. So Stu Honick, he had another roommate by this time and I vouched for him, and obviously he was home because the boys called him. But one person did not have an alibi. Lori Bimbenek. Lori Bimbenek had no alibi. Now, She was home sleeping, which most people are doing at 2.30 in the morning, right? And if being at home sleeping and just nobody's there to watch you is not having an alibi, then there's a shit ton of people that don't have an alibi when all kinds of things are going down, right? I mean, she was doing normal things that people do at 2.30 in the morning. She was home sleeping, supposedly. That is her story.
1: That's her story, and Lori's alibi was that she was at home sleeping after having packed to move into a new apartment with Fred the, the following month,
0: so they were getting ready to leave. Right. Judy's, Judy's S. had moved out, and they actually got a smaller place for the two of them that they had signed a lease on, and they were going to be leaving, but this happened obviously before that. Would
1: Would you keep it that simple if you're lying? You know what I mean? No. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, she was a smart woman. She had to know... I don't, this doesn't necessarily hold up, but if it's the truth, that's what you're going to say.
0: But it, it it becomes more than this. So again, like I said, there's, things are starting to add up here about Lori. So like we said, police are questioning everybody in this circle. Everybody they knew, including Judy's s. And Judy says, oh yeah, I remember Lori having a green jogging suit. She actually has four jogging suits and one of them is definitely green. This is her friend, Judy this The same one that lied about her smoking weed. And then she also says, oh, you know what? Lori hangs her clothes outside. <laughs> she has access to a clothesline. She has a clothesline. And it was a clothesline that was used to tie Christine's hands to her bed. Her
1: left hand with, was wrapped with a clothesline wrapped around it. And as we mentioned before, some sort of bandana-type handkerchief wrapped around her head as a gag. That's how the body was found.
0: And Judy also says that her and Lori were having dinner not too long ago with Judy's mother. And Judy was somewhat taken aback by some of the statements that Lori made about Christine, saying that how she's frustrated that they have to pay so much. As Mickey alluded to, they were paying alimony. They were paying Christine's basically housing for her, along with their own. And this was frustrating. Lori would publicly Lori complain about this. And say, according to Judy, that she wished Christ- something to the effect of she Christine was dead, It would be okay if she passed away. I should kill her. I should blow her up. Something of that. This is stuff people
1: say in passing that doesn't make you guilty of murder necessarily. But if you're saying it, you're thinking it, who
0: knows? Now, Fred also admitted that although he was not supposed to have a key to the house, once when he was with the boys, he took their keys and made two copies of keys to the house. Now, again, that's that's a big red flag to me right there is this is... This is your ex-wife and the mother of your children living in the house that you built. And they don't even want you to have a key to it. Like, what have you done to her? What have you said to her that makes her feel that way? That you had to get it.
1: Especially, that means she's not calling on you to come over and help with the house that you built. She doesn't want you anywhere around. Right. She doesn't even, I mean, she's not giving you the key. You had to make it on your own without the kid even knowing that you took it from him seems like a great
0: guy so again now although he wasn't supposed to have one he did make copies when he was with the boys and one of them stayed in the house and as we mentioned earlier there were no signs of breaking so because one of them stayed in their apartment this would give glory access to the house she may not have known it she may not have known it right but technically there was a key in that apartment that wasn't supposed to be there put there by somebody that wasn't her but that still meant That she had access to that
1: house. Because she lives with him, she has access to this key and to his off-duty
0: revolver. Synthetic fibers, reddish in color, were found at the scene, presumably from a wig, right? Now, soon after the murder... June 10th, 1981. Fred and Lori's neighbors had some plumbing issues in their apartment. Their toilet was clogged. Now, in this apartment building, Fred and Lori's septic system was shared with their neighbors. So there was one pipe for both septic systems. So their neighbor had trouble. F- it was clogged drains. Right, right. They they couldn't they couldn't flush the toilet, so they call a the plumber over. And the plumber opens up the pipes and he pulls out a red wig. And the state crime lab experts said the fibers from the wig were
1: consistent with the fibers found on Christine's right calf at the murder scene.
0: So somebody tried to flush a wig down the toilet, a toilet with a septic system going to Laurie's apartment. Another good decision by the way. Of course.
1: Because a wig goes down the toilet real easy. Easy. No problem. And we're never sarcastic.
0: Now also, in o- the owner of a wig shop, the owner of a wig shop stated that she remembered Lori came into her store and purchased that wig. And she knows for an absolute fact it was Lori Bembenek that bought that wig because she purchased it with a check. And obviously the name Lori Bembenek was on that check. So it is a no doubter right. to this shop employee. It had to have been her that, that wrote Lori the check. bought that wig. Also, two blonde hairs were apparently found at the scene on the blue bandana used as a gag. The police compared this hair to hair from Lori's hairbrush and it was quote consistent unquote with Larry's. Remember there's no DNA yet. We're so we're in nineteen eighty one here. DNA doesn't even come into use until 86, 87. it's not prevalent until the nineties. And as we talked about in the Walter Ellis
1: episode, they had a real issue with the DNA they were collecting anyway. 17,000 cases of it were lost at some point.
0: So all this is starting to add up and does not look good for Lori. But here is the smoking gun, so to speak. Yeah,
1: no pun intended.
0: 22 days after the murder, over three weeks after the murder, they confiscate Fred's guns. Both his service weapon, which he had on him that night, And the off-duty gun, which was left in the apartment in which Lori supposedly had access to. A cop comes over. It's a cop both Lori and Fred know. They're hanging out. They're drinking beers. And the cop says, oh, yeah, that's right, Fred, before I leave, I need your guns. So Fred gives them the guns. Were they the same guns? Who knows? Because Mr. Durfee on the night of the murder never wrote down the serial numbers to the gun. And not only did he never write down the serial numbers to the guns, he doesn't even know where his notebook is for that night. How convenient.
1: Right. I mean, I lose notebooks all the time that have important information in them, don't you? Of
0: Especially when you're at the scene of a murder. And you're a police officer, who sure. Would, who would want that info? I would just, yeah,
1: you, I mean, mistakenly lose your information from a notebook that's containing important information. Sure, that's lost easily, right?
0: So now, even though that gun that night was inspected by Michael Durfee, was inspected by Fred Schultz and was taken down to police headquarters and looked at by who knows who and found that that gun was not fired at all recently. After the guns were confiscated by Milwaukee PD, Monty Lutz, the state ballistics expert, deems that, no, 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 this off-duty weapon is the murder weapon. That's where
1: the bullet came from.
0: Fired the bullet into Christine Schultz. And the
1: medical examiner, since we're getting into this, said that, as Scott alluded to, was shot in the back through the heart with a thirty eight caliber revolver pistol. And the examiner said that it was shot so close that she had burns around the wound. So this wasn't a faraway shot. This was
0: on the skin. So this is all pretty damning stuff, right? If you're Lori, you're in big trouble. There's all kinds of circumstantial evidence connecting you to this scene. There's even your hair possibly at the scene. And now you're the only one that had access during the murder to the, according to the state ballistics expert, murder weapon.
1: And it was said, to his credit, if he deserves any, that Fred would adamantly and repeatedly claim that Lori wouldn't do something like this. So at the time, he was full defense. She's still his wife. He's in full defense
0: of her He's got her back, supposedly, so at least to the reports and to the public. So now again, all this is really damning stuff to Lori, and Lori gets arrested, and she goes on trial for the murder.
1: While at work at Marquette University, as we mentioned earlier, she was arrested while she was at work.
0: So Lori goes on trial for the murder of Christine Schultz, and all of this is presented at trial, right? The gun, the wig, the hair, Judy Zess's testimony, that's hard to overcome so now because of lori right because she's the playboy bunny she's the femme fatale she's this attractive 22 year old 5 foot 10 blonde knockout the media couldn't get enough of this trial it was a media sensation internationally big time news it was a drama on tv you know everybody wants to compare things to the oj simpson trial and that obviously was the biggest trial probably any of us have ever seen right this was that in that time right there's no cable tv then before right? media was what right. it is now people were you know waiting for news reports they were waiting at the door for the newspaper this is what they wanted to know about. you had
1: three or four channels to choose from so it might have been on all of them at different times the coverage of
0: this story so this was this was a big big deal in milwaukee and beyond this trial in 1982. Now, it had intrigue because, obviously, in spite of the evidence, all of the evidence seemingly against her, it was not necessarily as cut and dry as it may seem. Many people were on Lori's side for a couple of reasons, much of which was the testimony of Sean, Christine's son, again, who was 11 at the time of this murder. He was adamant in his testimony.
1: Broad shoulders and large man hands. That the person he saw in the house was a man. 100% certain
0: it was a dude. He was steadfast that it was a man and said it could not have been Lori, quote, even if she was wearing shoulder pads. And and
1: an 11-year-old boy, I mean, that's when we started caring about sports and music and all that stuff. You're starting to come into who you are. I mean, just because you're 11 doesn't mean you're clueless. I. No. He's probably not going to lie, especially about his mother being killed. And they killed. knew her.
0: They knew, they knew Lori. Right. It was their stepmom. Right. They knew I she mean, was. You don't think that they would recognize that right. that was, even if she's got a mask on? I mean, yeah. Jesus. Just her build alone. They've seen her enough. You know, but the prosecution maintains that it was her, right? It, it was indeed Lori. And they maintain that she, so their case is that she went there that night, not necessarily to kill Christine, right? But to scare her and have her leave the area because she wanted the house. Lori, they say, wanted the house because it was too expensive for Fred to pay for everything.
1: And yeah, right. They, they wanted to get rid of the bills and they wanted the house to live in because they didn't really have any place else.
0: So the plan, according to the prosecution, was basically to scare Christine back to Appleton and go back and live with her family up here and get out of their lives down there. But it went wrong. You know, Lori was recognized by Christine, so she had to kill her. So she uses is their story. So she uses Fred's off-duty weapon that he left in the apartment. She got in using Fred's key that he wasn't supposed to have. She jogged there, which is about 18 blocks, from their apartment. Sure. Wearing black police shoes. With a gun. Carrying a 38 revolver, a mask, and a wig. Did the deed and then jogged back to her apartment, presumably carrying all this stuff back. Nobody saw her, even though it's in a neighborhood in which is filled with police officers.
1: And apparently, as we've said... She draws attention everywhere
0: she goes, but no one noticed this beautiful bombshell Even Even the boys, obviously, who we just said, who knew her very well, that was their stepmother, just were not able to tell it was really her. (laughs) But on March 9th, 1982, Lori Mibenik is found guilty of first-degree murder in the death of Christine Schultz and is sentenced to life in prison. She's sent to Techeetah Correctional Institute in Fond du Lac County, which is a maximum security women's prison. So now, as we have said, this is a very long, convoluted story. If you don't know the story and this is your first taste of it, just know that you have heard nothing
1: yet. you, You know about the murder scene and the corruption of the department and the people involved in the story. There's a whole lot more.
0: So tune in next week, which is Christmas weekend. We should have this up by the time you have your your family gatherings on Christmas Eve so you can have some some happy listening as you open your
1: presents. Your favorite podcast. To know the conclusion. Of Run Bambi Run. Merry Christmas.